0: So today, uh, we're going to be talking about the second noble truth and the Brahma-vihara of metta. So yesterday, Laurie spoke about the first noble truth, dukkha, or what is painful or stressful. And when we understand, uh, and the task of truly understanding dukkha, when we understand the truth that birth is painful, death is painful, sickness and old age are painful, we, together with the Buddha, look for causes. So, the first thing to consider is what causes dukkha? The Buddha wanted to know what causes and conditions lead to dukkha. We wonder the same thing about complex problems like climate change or pandemics uh, and racism. But we might also want to know about how suffering arises for more mundane issues our annoyance at a neighbor, or our struggle to lose weight, or who's supposed to have done these dishes in the sink. Life is full of dissatisfactions. And when we care for others, we also want to know what are the causes and conditions for their suffering too. So let's take the case of the isolation imposed by the pandemic at least for those of us observing appropriate protections. Many people have told me that they have mixed feelings about this situation. They hesitate to admit it, but along with the painful feelings, being apart from people they care about, not being able to do some of the things they used to do, there's also a strange contentment or even pleasure in it. may feel sad about living alone but others quarantined with those they do not necessarily enjoy being close to may envy you. And always there are the embodied negotiations with others on the street, in a store, in your own living room. So through our practice we begin to realize how much we are the amplifiers of our own pain, how we use this circumstance like so many others as Okamura said, either uh, to be dragged by karma or led by vow. The bodhisattva path is filled with opportunities to turn the awareness of painful factors we're experiencing outward and to realize this must also be painful for others in just the same way. In these times, animal shelters have been emptied out. People have taken up knitting, painting, and yoga with a vengeance. Uh, It is the outward turn for soothing and comfort, for self-improvement, and for some validation of our existence. But these measures are temporary and superficial. They do not address the underlying causes and conditions that make this situation so painful. So, the second question is what are the causes and conditions? What are those? So, Western forms of reasoning use a linear logical model. In simplest terms, we believe in the formulation A causes B. B is caused by A. Unfortunately, this simplistic view has created a host of terrible consequences even when it is not fundamentally wrong-headed. Because even using this simple formula, many people cannot reason. We have a sitting U.S. president who believes that testing causes COVID cases and that therefore if there's less testing, there would be fewer cases. Others believe that because bars have opened, the pandemic is over. Even the simplest reasoning from facts is beyond them. We have never as a culture comprehended the complexity of reality, it seems. The linear causal model is useless for living systems, human minds and bodies, ecosystems, economies, educational systems, the arts, political systems. We're confronted with its failure daily, and it's a good thing maybe we will finally be able to learn what the Buddha taught 2500 years ago. The Buddha used the term Samudaya for the second noble truth. It is often translated as origin or cause, but that does not nearly really can convey the meaning. As Gil Fronsdale has pointed out, Samudaya refers to the causes and conditions that bring something into being. As we learned when studying Johanna Macy's mutual causality, the Buddha did not teach linear causation, as in A causes B. Because of our simplistic thinking, this is a bit difficult for most people to understand. Even later Buddhist commentators fell back into the linear way of thinking in terms of causes and effects. We believe, for example, that we sit in meditation in order to something, and you can fill in the blank with your own notions Mm, you started with in order to be calmer in order to be less anxious to be a better parent or to experience altered states of consciousness to achieve the magical state of enlightenment of course there are effects from meditation both for you and for those around you but the reality you encounter looks nothing like this orderly cause and effect ideal. And if you are less angry now, a more attuned and compassionate parent, more at ease in the world, can you even point to what in meditation caused this transformation? Here's an example of dependent origination or mutual causality in the birth of a baby. Before the baby is conceived, there are two people who enact their roles, say of husband and wife, Or partners or strangers who meet in a bar there are no parents yet before the baby is conceived there's no such thing as a father and mother the moment the baby is conceived parents are created did the baby cause the parents no they were there before the baby did the parents cause the baby we can't exactly say that either because their actions may or may not result in a pregnancy and in any event The egg and sperm have their own agendas. Those agendas, and the blueprints for them, stretch back in evolutionary terms to the very first life forms. Did the midwife or doctor cause the baby? No, but they are part of what brings the baby into the world, and if there are complications, they are actively engaged in ensuring the health of the baby and the mother. Where does this end the causes and conditions of birth? Where does it begin? So it is not so simple to determine the causes and conditions that make situations painful. Birth, death, aging, sickness, having to be with what we do not love, having to be apart from what we love and not getting what we want. What then arises in us is tanha in the Pali language meaning thirst. As I mentioned Monday morning, there's a naturally occurring phenomenon, this thirst, It's not a moral failing. It arises spontaneously whenever we find a situation painful. Dukkha. The Buddha gave some clues about this thirst. Craving, he called it in some places, ignorance leading to craving in others. What kinds of craving? Craving for sense pleasures, to begin with. It's not merely that we're hungry and wish we could have a nice meal. We don't want to be too cold, too hot, too tired. We don't want to have to eat what we don't like. We want to be able to hug our little grandchild, or snuggle next to someone we love in bed. We want the delicious comfort of a fluffy quilt in winter, that last little square of chocolate, and the aroma of incense in the zendo. We crave the freedom to go where we want to dig our toes in the sand at the beach, or to breathe the crisp air of the mountain forests. Some of these sense pleasures are small and fleeting, but we often act as though we can permanently satisfy our senses. A new car or piece of furniture, surely that's a lasting pleasure. So craving for sense pleasures occupies a good portion of our day, from idle speculation about what to have for breakfast to the last sip of cold water and the pillow we fluff up at bedtime. It also includes craving for money to buy things that are pleasing to us and to our senses. Of course we can appreciate sense pleasures as they arise, but our clinging to them or our craving for them can create pain for ourselves and for others. And as the Buddha said, this is an ignoble pursuit not the pursuit of awakened beings. So another cause for pain is craving for existence, the Buddha taught. This is interesting to me because it raises the question, what gives you the feeling that you exist? Is it the experience of your body? Is it being seen by others, having their approval, making them happy, helping? Is it expressing something through your art or through your performance, maybe, in your work? We generally long to be seen, to be noticed, to be appreciated and approved of. Some people don't seem to care about how others respond to them, of course, but that may reflect a kind of giving up or despair that it is even possible. We generally are more or less social beings, constantly scanning the people around us, for a sense of well-being. Of course it's different for each person what that looks like and what that means. If people are laughing, are they laughing with you or at you? Often we project onto others our own conditioning and beliefs. So we try to cultivate a better self by educating ourselves, reading, learning, practice. Maybe we only really want to amaze ourselves But it is important to be something. We cling to our identifications, our identity. We think, we speak, we act. But there's a big difference between doing so out of craving for existence and doing so free of that craving. There is an ease and naturalness to that freedom and we notice it in others sometimes. And what about craving for non-existence? The third thing that the Buddha mentioned as a source of craving. Haven't you sometimes wished you could sink into the floor and disappear? Shame is a powerful feeling that often causes us to wish for non-existence. This is not the same as being suicidal or longing for death. Just to not be here in this moment, to be somewhere else, to vanish, to crawl under the covers and pull them up over your head. This too is a cause of pain for ourselves and for others. There's a longing to just perish. In any situation that is painful, of course, we may find any or all of these causes and conditions. But there are other causes as well. When the Buddha was asked if all suffering was the result of our karma, he said, of course not. There are accidents. There are the malicious acts of others who wish to harm us or who are caught up in their own self-centered dream. And, I would add, there are historical forces and systemic and structural dynamics that are beyond our own agency or intention that also create a great deal of pain that is not produced by our tanha, or thirst. However, in meeting these circumstances, we can certainly see how we can greatly amplify the pain and suffering when we are caught in our craving. The Buddha was most concerned with the individuals he was teaching and what each person could do to remove the causes and conditions for suffering that are within that person's power. And that includes not only the inner work of relinquishing craving, but the relational work of encouraging and instructing others and serving as an example of this possibility. so in his awakening the buddha discovered what we now know as the 12-fold chain of causation he realized this chain of causation and understood it backwards and forwards that is when this arises that arises and this not arising that does not arise this sets the stage for dismantling the causes and conditions that create suffering even when there are underlying conditions such as sickness, old age, birth, and death. These are factors that are mutually dependent on each other. They arise dependent on each other. (coughs) Although it cannot be said that one causes another. If we break this chain at any link, the whole mass of suffering collapses. And one of those links is this craving. It's one of the easiest to attach to. So let's consider, for example, a tree, which depends on water to grow, and in reverse, if there's no water, there's no tree. But it cannot be said that the water causes the tree, or even causes the tree to grow. There are many factors, including sunlight, nutrients in the soil, beneficial bacteria, and so on, that form the nexus of conditions that make it possible for the tree to grow. The task in this second noble truth is for those causes and conditions that create painfulness or distress to be abandoned. We can engage our own inquiry, as the Buddha did, into the causes and conditions that give rise to our own suffering. But as bodhisattvas, that is not the end of our concern. We are dedicated to the liberation and relief of suffering for all beings. The Buddha was not interested in discovering fundamental truths of existence but in the fundamental transformation of beings. We study how suffering arises in ourselves so that we will understand at a deep and intimate level how suffering arises for others. We interrupt the cycle of causes and conditions and abandon them so that we can support others in that same abandonment that leads to relief. This is reflected in Dogen's famous instruction. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be actualized by the myriad things. When actualized by myriad things, your body and mind, as well as the bodies and minds of others, drop away. No trace of realization remains, and this no trace continues endlessly. Central to understanding all the myriad causes and conditions that bring dukkha into being for ourselves, for others, and for the whole world, are the three marks of existence, anicca, dukkha, and anatman. Every formation is subject to these three marks of existence. They are defining not only for objects, but processes, systems, and concepts. Anicca, often translated as impermanence, is probably better understood as inconstancy, as Gil Fronsdale has taught. Everything is continuously changing. There is a flow of transformation. Because these, uh, these transformational changes may not be visible to our senses, or because they happen on a larger or tinier time scale than we can observe, we have the illusion that things can have permanence. Don't be fooled by this illusion. To realize that all things are also bound up in dukkha simply means that everything that exists can be experienced as painful. Not always, of course. But if we look closely, even our joy in our children, for example, is accompanied by worry, grief at how quickly they are changing, anxiety over their well-being, fears for the world they are entering, and on and on. Anatman is the realization of non-self, that is, nothing whatsoever can be thought of as solid, as having a substantial permanent existence nothing whatsoever can be thought of as i me and mine if this pandemic has taught us nothing else it has shown us these three marks of existence for today you can examine for yourself whether anything whatsoever is free of them impermanence suffering and (coughs) non-self Which brings us to understanding the pervasive causes and conditions for dukkha that naturally evoke the Brahma-Vihara of metta, usually translated as loving-kindness, but as Gill has suggested, better thought of as benevolence. We might think of metta as basic human kindness or friendly concern. We can see clearly that people are not sole agents of the creation of suffering. Bad people do not explain suffering, but are themselves what needs explanation. When observing the signs of suffering in the world around us, how universal it is. What on earth leads anyone to want to increase it by even an atom? Clearly, ignorance, grasping, aversion, and delusion must themselves be causes and conditions for cruelty and destruction. Working this backwards, where ignorance, grasping, aversion and delusion are not present, cruelty does not arise. Benevolence reflects care and in that sense is the default mode for Appa Seeing the causes and conditions for the suffering of others through the eyes of kindness in Buddhism is not a cause for sadness. Instead, it galvanizes us into compassionate action. How are we inspired to act? By the conviction that relief from suffering is possible and our very kindness is a key. So, when we practice radiating kindness or benevolence uh, in the practice of the Brahmaviharas, We are addressing the causes and conditions of suffering in ourselves and in others. And you can feel it. Uh, We can uh, dismantle some of the apparatus within us that keeps suffering in place. So the good news is that tomorrow we discover that the cessation of suffering, that is the painful quality of our experiences, is indeed possible for ourselves and for others. This is the basis for profound and lasting joy." So I want to say, um, this isn't to say that you can somehow be transported to the magical realm where there is no birth, death, uh, pain or sickness. Um, Bodily pain continues to be uh, experienced. But we begin to notice all that we wrap around that bodily pain, all of our resistance, all of our negotiations, all of the ways that we use our conditioning uh, to insulate us from just the bare experience of it. So um, in that way we amplify whatever we might naturally be experienced as and in a physical body. Uh, the ways in which we manipulate our experience and amplify the suffering for ourselves. So I don't want to give you the impression that the Buddha taught that somehow you would not uh, have the physical pain that's associated with having a human body that gets sick, that gets old, that dies. Um, But rather to uh, examine all of the ways in which our thirst that this be not so uh, creates additional suffering uh, that we wrap around whatever our actual experience is. So, um, so tomorrow we'll talk about the cessation of suffering—that that very genuine possibility, um, at least the painful uh, apparatus we add onto our experience—and um, uh, so Lori will be talking about that, and about—and this is actually the basis for joy. So later today, also, we'll send out the schedule for Sunday when we'll meet between 6.30 and 2 o'clock. So you'll have some idea about that. And followed by uh, Joan's ceremony at 2.30, uh, the head student completion ceremony, which we're looking forward to. And uh, it'll be our first uh, opportunity to do a formal uh, Zen ceremony entirely online. So, um, So I hope you'll be able to join us for that uh and um i think that's all that i uh that i have to say today and we'll do our morning service next will we be walking uh we will be walking it's perfect day for walking so uh, we definitely will be walking this morning um and i hope all of you have an opportunity to get out and take a walk while it's still cool enough to do so